This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Greetings from Times Towers in London Bridge for the Times Opinion Podcast. Wherever you are listening, Tuscany, Florida, the Lake District or your own kitchen, we haven't given up on you over the summer. Like many political and opinion podcasts, we're going to try and bring you all the latest throughout August. And joining me today are Isabel Hardman, Matthew Paris and David Aronovich. Here are our three topics. Politicians are obeying perfectly the rules of a summer crisis on Calais. They are ensuring that they are seen to be doing something on the question of illegal migrants by posturing on regulations around the private rented sector, rather than answering the question of how to solve the crisis, especially whether Britain should be letting in some of those thronging on the border at Calais. Why answer difficult questions when you can just pretend to be busy? Fear and dislike of the left is what impelled me into the Conservative Party as an undergraduate and it's part of the Tories' raison d'etre, the cement that holds together often ideologically very different members of the same party. If Labour really does fall apart, the Tories will be next. The IPCC recently announced that it was investigating a claim that Wiltshire police had abandoned a case in the 1990s because someone involved had alleged that Edward Heath was implicated in child sexual abuse. On the back of that announcement, Wiltshire police then made an open appeal outside Ted Heath's old house, in effect for anyone who had been abused by Heath to come forward. Social media was immediately filled with claims that Heath was a notorious abuser. I think the world has gone mad. Let's start with you, um, Isabel Hardman from The Spectator. Thank you for joining us today. And you've chosen as your topic the situation in Calais. And uh, you're not entirely impressed with the way that our political class has reacted. No, and I suppose they're reacting because this is the way the media forces them to react, which is to be seen to be doing something, but not to answer any difficult questions that might then upset some quarters of the media. I see that the crisis has developed from politicians have to be doing something to politicians must come back from their holidays because obviously phones, email, etc. don't exist. And (laughs) you have to be in the same room in the Cabinet Office in order to be taking something very seriously. So that's how the Calais crisis is developing. Meanwhile, no one seems to be making any argument about why we aren't or should be letting in certain people who are at the border. It's just what we're doing to stop them from renting homes when they get here. It's a complete sideshow, really. The measures of the government announcing aren't really going to solve 
what yeah. we're seeing in Calais. And it's the same as any crackdowns on benefit tourism. Most people in Calais want to come here to work and you might have a debate about whether they should be coming here to work or not and actually asylum seekers when they're here aren't allowed to work anyway. They're just kept on five day five pounds a day, which is a really awful way of treating people, mm. I think. And what's what's your hunch? Is how big a problem is Calais? We've got a story in Tuesday's Times talking about in one month alone about seventy thousand refugees going through the German system. There's three or four thousand refugees in Calais, quite a small number in comparison. It's clearly causing trouble for people in Kent, it's causing problems for the road haulage industry, but uh, we aren't a country that is actually welcoming in many asylum seekers, refugees no, at the moment. I suppose this is the point that David made in his column last week, which is that in comparison with many other European countries, and particularly those countries closer to Syria and other countries where there is serious trouble, we're taking very few people at all. We've refused to take part in the refugee programme for Syrian refugees, and I think that's quite embarrassing personally. I, I think the Matthew Paris pseudo activity is actually e evasion in an even larger way than you you say, Isabel. I, the truth is that th the French government are letting this happen. They could stop it. They could stop it straight away. It's not just the refugee crisis. It's the the striking uh, French workers who are e enormously compounding the problem. The French are being completely unhelpful, but the British government is at a delicate stage in talking to the French as well as others about our European renegotiations and they don't want to hammer the French. Normally, the British government would be blaming France in these circumstances. What, what, what do you want France to do? Put these troops my, in, in a camp? What, what, what exactly do you want them to do? Just put, well, just the, put the, fences and walls of security troops there? Yes. Yes, yes. you, 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 you just um, send in the army. It's a, it won't it won't solve the problem but it would contain the problem and there's no way that uh, the strikers ought to be able to be getting onto the uh, euro tunnel lines and, and and trying to set fire to one end of the tunnel no it, uh, the, the the french authorities have obviously just decided to let this go on under their nose do, do you have any sympathy for the point that rachel sylvester made in her tuesday column that as, as the French have been saying, a lot of this is the attractiveness of an unregulated, growing black economy in the UK, the fact that we don't have ID cards. In a sense, why should France clean up a mess that is being created by the way we run things here? Because the mess is hurting France as much as Britain. It's, it, it's, it, it's desperately bad for the, the transport industry. It's, it's bad for Eurostar. Uh, it's bad for the French haulage industry as well as the British one, and things have got out of control. David, uh, you wrote a column in last Thursday's newspaper in which uh, you've, you, you felt a lot of sadness and a little bit of anger about our country's reaction to this. Well, I do. I mean, and actually, uh, I can extend that anger to the way in which the French also, the French government, have also been grandstanding uh, about this. Uh, I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that we don't have ID cards, these people coming over to, to, to Britain. I bet most of them don't know that we don't have ID cards at the point where they make for Calais. It's a kind of ridiculous notion and incidentally many more of them make for Germany where they have ID cards mm. so this is just stupid uh, and it just shows that the French uh, government is capable of being as stupid as our own government and uh, I suppose there's no sort of very great surprise in that and I think it's exactly as Isabel says there is a kind of demand that you I mean coming back to Matthew's point however it has to be said if you do close off by a force majeure the ability to access Calais then the problem will move to uh, another port.
it will simply move and if it doesn't go to there then it will move to one of the Spanish ports or whatever it will move to wherever it's going those people set out a lot of them across the Mediterranean or across the border at Hungary and Serbia with the intention of coming to Britain for various reasons just as others more set out for going for Sweden and set out to, for going to Germany and the question is as I said in the, the, the column last night with 1.9 million Syrian refugees in Turkey alone and with a large part of the population of Eritrea on the move because of the kind of government it's got and so on uh, these are huge international problems that are not solved by kind of micromanagement attempts to try and make the British people think that something's going to happen. Do you think as a country, David, we should be taking more refugees? I th- what I said on, in the column, on a proper we could easily, regulated basis, we could easily, we could easily absorb the people at Calais. Now, people then, of course, say there are two problems with that. First is moral hazard. Mm. Um, if you allow the people who are coming in from Calais, what is it you are saying to people who go about the business of becoming uh, migrants entirely legitimately? I think there is a small problem with that, and you do actually want to make that make sure that your processing goes well and that you make demands of the people who do come in and so on. Uh, and the second problem, of course, is that is the that if you take those 5,000, you immediately replace them with 5,000 more. I'm not so sure that's true, but you can see that there is a problem that it would be added to. However, even then, in the grand scheme of things, given, let's say, net migration levels, etc., they are a fairly small number uh, and set against nothing as to what we would do, what we would take in, if we were actually to fulfil what I think and other people think are our moral obligations to refugees. you, You can make the case for taking more people and I, I think you can make it quite persuasively but it doesn't solve the problem there's the whole population of Eritrea is trying to get out of Eritrea at the moment uh, the, the, the wider problem I think is that the Geneva Convention on a, a, a asylum seeking is was framed after the Second World War to deal with a specific problem it just can't be applied any longer in a world in which millions of people can move very fast I think we probably got to uh, end the Geneva Convention or change it. That's a controversial uh, yes. recommendation. But in, that case, in that case, Matthew, all you will do is make the situation very much worse for the people who are moving. You're not going to stop them moving. You're just going to make the situation for them, for them worse. And that again comes back to another point that, that, that's being made here. We seem to have got into the, uh, got ahead of the, the punitive notion that somehow we will prevent this if we're nasty enough. We are not prepared to be as nasty as it would take us to be in order to stop this happening. How nasty do people want us to become? I don't think we, you know, it wouldn't be a recognisable country. Well, it's a pity we didn't leave um, Colonel Gaddafi in power in Libya. He would have stopped them. Well, yes, oh. I mean, if we want to become that nasty, then in that <laughs> case we may very well... It works both ways, though. Assad is Syria, we did not intervene, and that is also a huge source of... It's a but, whether source. we intervene or don't intervene, well, we're, we always seem to be to blame. It's a pity <laughs> Assad isn't still in full control in Syria. I it was better when he was. The debate has become much more about the pull factors in this country, rather than, as David said, the push factors which are always going to be of greater magnitude than anything we can do in terms of regulations around landlords and that sort of thing and I think it's it's the same actually as the debate that a lot of MPs have been trying to have about what we should call Islamic State, it's yes. much easier yes. to go on and on about that and they bang right. on and on about it in the chamber because it makes them feel in control of something they don't they, really have they any bigger answer it. to, exactly 
we have a government, um, Isabel, that promised to bring net immigration down to the tens of thousands. It's up above 300,000 a year at the moment. And there is probably going to be no public appetite at all for Britain taking more refugees. If we had control of our borders outside of the European Union or within a reformed European Union, and perhaps immigration was down to the kind of level that David Cameron promised, do you think... Britain would be more open to accepting asylum seekers then or is the hostility there to the whole idea a deeper thing? It's not about numbers, it's just... I think the hostility would would always be there and to a certain extent it's down to the politicians to make the case for the benefits of migration and the historical contribution that people who've fled to this country have made and it really baffled me that Cameron thought it was a good idea to recommit to the net migration target after its spectacular failure in the last parliament. He couldn't knock. If he, if he retreated from that, it would have been a huge gift for UKIP. We forget UKIP now. They flopped yes, into the general really election. But they, yeah. There was a time when we were quite worried about them, or the Conservatives were quite worried about but them. given he had failed so spectacularly on it, and given he doesn't really want to leave Europe, and given European leaders don't want to reform the principle of freedom of movement within the European Union he seems to promise something that it seems impossible to achieve and mm. therefore has condemned himself to years and years of headlines saying Cameron fails to curb immigration yet again. I mean it's great for journalists but not for him. Okay thank you very much. Well let's move on to Corbyn mania. Whoever thought we'd be talking about Corbyn know, mania. <laughs> there was a picture in uh, one of the papers of uh, on Monday night he did a big rally in Camden Town and three teenagers stood on a sort of first-floor windowsill trying to peer into this great orator, this great figure in British politics speaking. Who would have thought it? But we did in last week's podcast, we looked at its implications for the Labour Party. Um, Matthew, you're interested in what the election of Jeremy Corbyn might mean for the Conservative Party, and you sort of seem to suggest that we're not all ideologically united in the Conservative Party, that there might be some differences between us. No, that's because I read a column by someone called Tim Montgomery (laughs) a few years ago now, suggesting that the political parties that we now have in Britain don't actually match what you might call the groupings, the ideological splits that there are in Britain, and suggesting, as I recall, that we should have a national party, which would be sort of right and centre-right, and we should have a a liberal party. Yeah. Which should be. I think kind I, put, of, I put you in there, I think. Yes, yeah. You're probably was, in yeah, with David. I quite correctly, yeah. David, and I would both be in that party. <laughs> now, I think the only thing that keeps the Conservative Party together, which it is more, it's, it's a, a coalition, it's an often rather uncomfortable coalition of serious right wingers who are fairly reactionary and free marketeers uh, who are something else again and wishy washy liberals like myself and. And David, uh, David's not in the Conservative Party. I am, but I, I, I would say David was a robust liberal rather than a wishy-washy liberal. But well, well, I was going to say, he, Matthews, he and my, Matthews and my party would have a very interesting <laughs> debate about foreign policy. Is what yes, that's true. We wouldn't agree about everything. But I do think that uh, the reason I joined the Conservative Party, the reason most people joined it, was that they didn't like what they thought socialism and the left and the Labour Party was doing or might do to Britain. And there's no great burning ideal of conservatism that has drawn us gravitationally we're we're cemented together by fear of the barbarians at the gates now if the barbarians at the gates fall apart 
and if Jeremy Corbyn leads, or indeed if Yvette Cooper limps in with Jeremy Corbyn having come first on the first preferences, I think the Labour Party might just fall apart and then I think the Conservative Party would quickly split. Mm. So against a strong opponent, the Conservative Party has to be at its best as well. Against a weak, divided opponent, the Tories start squabbling amongst themselves. So So you're worried about the the Tories' immediate future if Jeremy Corbyn becomes... Yes, but worried is perhaps the wrong word, be rather exciting, and I I think we probably do (laughs) need the realignment that you suggest, Tim. Okay. well, if any of you are wondering what on earth uh, Matthew is talking about with this article, uh, but you are a Times subscriber, do go to thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral, where I will put a link to the article that I wrote and also some of the other articles that we've been talking about. Isabel, uh, do you buy Matthew's theory that Tory divisions could be next? Well, I think one of the things that, that will happen if Jeremy Corbyn isn't elected leader is that the left will have such a claim on Labour Party policy that it will be very difficult for, for any leader to, to lead that party effectively unless they really face them down and say, no, you're wrong and this is why you're wrong. These are my Labour values. What you're preaching isn't Labour and I'm going to get on with it, which is something that David Cameron didn't really do with his naughty MPs for quite a long time. He only really faced them down on immigration in November 2014 after quite a few years of them saying, can you just go a bit further on Europe and can you just go a bit further on immigration? And actually that worked because they spent the day after his speech when he faced them down saying, oh, we've lost the election. And well, they turned out to be wrong and he turned out to be right on on that. So I think you need a, a lack of timidity from whoever takes over. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. And whoever continues to lead the Conservative Party in facing down people they disagree with rather than indulging them and saying, oh, they're very principled, which is what has been happening with Jeremy Corbyn recently. We talked about the the failure of UKIP at the last general election. That, of course, was a huge advantage for David Cameron as well. People have actually seen the model of a splinter party and not do very well under Britain first past the post system. That's going to perhaps help him keep Tory MPs under control. Yes, but... um, Fair enough, uh, we can talk about the failure of UKIP, but um, they did get about 11%. Four million votes. Of of the vote, four million votes. And uh, those people are still there and those voters are still there. And I think uh, uh, if the Conservative Party were to divide between its Liberal and its non-Liberal wing, the non-Liberal wing would have a good market there to to play to. I'm, I'm going to suggest to you, Matthew, why actually, far from it turning out the way you think it will, 
it may turn out the opposite way. And it's this. Already if, the split in the Liberal Party. <laughs> um, well, if, the, if, if Jeremy Corbyn does become leader of the Labour Party, or if the left is very powerful in the Labour Party, as the government seeks to implement what the left calls austerity, then there will be a massive reaction in the public sector, very substantially. Now, what would have happened up until let's say, Corbyn becoming leader, is that Labour would have said, would have acted as a restraining factor on, let's say, industrial action and other forms of action and street action against government policy. With Corbyn there, that restraining factor will quite likely just simply disappear. They will actually quite likely just simply say they support it. Now, in terms of what happens then on the left, I mean, coming from that area myself, I think I can see that what it will mean is that the notion that somehow or other you could bring down the government through your action, which is something the left is very prone to thinking anyway, will become a dominant thought. So what will happen is you will get a lot of strikes. And what happens with Tories when there are a lot of strikes is you all cluster back together again to face it down because you can see it's a big problem. You construct or reconstruct, you know, this notion of what the other is mm. and what the other is doing, which will be quite easy to do under those circumstances. You will have, the Conservative Party will have, the majority of the country by and large on its side uh, and so on, actually practically. And that is why you won't split and that is why you'll go into the next election if Corbyn becomes leader and you will win a landslide majority. That's a cheering thought. <laughs> not for me, it's not. I, I don't think there's much fight left in the public sector, but I may be wrong. And are we absolutely convinced that this sort of new left um, can't take off? Perhaps Jeremy Corbyn doesn't represent the new left, but one of our alternative topics for today, David, was uh, Barack Obama's climate change announcement. You are seeing the SNP do very well in Scotland on an anti-austerity ticket. There's quite a lot of support for non-interventionism in the world. Can you not see the beginnings uh, of some sort of new left framework? Um, let's be quite clear about the SNP. The SNP's anti-austerity is rhetorical only. It doesn't actually apply to anything they do in Scotland. They are a clear centrist party, probably actually more centrist even than Labour when it actually comes to Scottish matter. But what they do is they play to the rhetorical, the belief on the part of Scots that they are somehow more left-wing than the English, which when actually when you look at... Not attitudes, on issues like Trident and immigration. Not, no, no, but, but uh, no, not on, not on issues like Trident and immigration. They're on something like immigration. Uh, they, will, um, they will mirror London, somewhere like London much more closely. Mm. Um, Trident is a kind of sui generis issue. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to things like austerity, which is what you were talking about, i.e., the meat and drink of uh, uh, of politics, they're actually not very they're not they're not very left wing. And one of the things that's going to be very interesting is to watch what happens in Scotland if there is a Corbynite Labour Party, <laughs> because what they will soon discover is that the Scots aren't mm. signing up for it. I mean, they just they just won't. It will mm. actually, if anything, it will. But well, you can't strengthen the SNP more than they are at the moment. But um, um, uh, but it could. So, coming back to Barack Obama for a moment, however, this is not to say that there is not a very significant ground for an intelligent, progressive, centre-left party to take on the Conservatives. What the government is doing about climate change, deciding that it's going to reduce its own targets, for instance, it doesn't have to lead so much. I think it's going to keep reduce its targets, the subsidies. it's going to reduce the subsidies, whether yeah. those no, positions no, 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 are no, 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 It's not just reducing the subsidies, it's also decided that it doesn't have to be so, quite so energetic in its targets as well. It's done both. Um, and I think there is a legitimate ground for criticism. It is slightly embarrassing. However, it, therefore, it 
it also has to be said that Obama is saying this in what are the very last days, almost the last days of his presidency. And what we'll have to look out for is whether the Democratic candidates, and particularly, obviously, Hillary, adapt, adopt the Obamian agenda on it. Is Corbyn going to win? Do each of you think Corbyn's going to win? Matthew? No? No. Who do you think? He'll win on first preferences, and I think Yvette Cooper will win on second. It'll be a miserable affair. Um, And that could, of course, almost be the ideal Tory scenario. Corbyn being not quite the winner, but a powerful figure inside the party pulling whoever is elected Mm. leftward. David, do you Um, have a... It entirely depends on who comes third. And since we don't know that, it's impossible to predict. Because it's it's done by alternative vote and and transfer. So, frankly, if, if Yvette Cooper goes out first, then Burnham will certainly win. Um, if Andy Burnham goes out first, it's quite likely that Corbyn will win. I mean, you could make mm. an argument. Isabel? I think Cooper will probably just edge it. But it's interesting if you look at people like Chukar and Mune, who obviously pulled out of the race, they seem to be looking at Labour in opposition for a long time because Chukar is planning to try to set up institutions around the Labour Party that the Conservative Party had to strengthen them in opposition, like the CSJ, like the TPA, to try to make their Centre case... Centre for Social Justice, Taxpayers Alliance. Yes, yeah. yeah, to make their case for them so there's more noise than just the party. Let's uh, move on to a subject where there has been a lot of noise in recent days, not particularly attractive noises in your view, David Aronovich, and that's these historic allegations that have been made against the former Prime Minister, Ted Heath. Yeah, I mean, back in 2012, we discovered what many people had suspected, and we'd seen it in Louis Theroux um, uh, interview with Jimmy Savile, that Jimmy Savile had been involved in uh, sexual abuse, which had been either tolerated or known about um, by people who should have stopped it for a long time. Uh, And that opened the floodgates to a series, because it was such a sensational story and because it spoke to a degree of moral problem that we'd had for many years uh, historically, it opened the floodgates to all kinds of accusations, some of which had been around in what you might call the fringes of politics um, and uh, on the internet for some time. And what we've had is the kind of uh, latest iteration of it with Ted Heath. And as, a journal, as somebody who's looked into this sort of stuff quite a lot, um, what is interesting about this is, to me, is, it's, is the relationship between its tenuousness on the one hand and the amount of space it occupies on the other, from which any reader who is not incredibly attentive would derive the impression that this is a slam dunk and that actually Ted Heath was a known child abuser. This could not be further from the truth. Uh, I mean, at its most baldest, we can say we simply don't know. But insofar as we can evaluate what has been said about Ted Heath, we have an accusation in the mirror that comes from a former rent boy who said that he was picked up by him at the age of 12 in 1961, recognised him in a photograph in 1965, and nobody has spoken to this man. This comes from his deposition to his lawyer, as repeated, without any attempt at corroboration or checking on the front page of the mirror. And then we have the second part of the story, which is the IPCC, um, the Police Complaints uh, uh, Body, looking into a claim by a former policeman that an investigation... Uh, a prosecution was abandoned in the 90s because the person who was being prosecuted made an allegation alleging Ted Heath. 
a, a situation which would almost certainly have had to have gone up to the chief constable of Wiltshire at the time and therefore could be quite easily checked out, on the back of which, of the IPCC doing that, Wiltshire police then parade down in front of Ted Hee's old house, a, a photograph doing it, a scene doing it, and say, we are now investigating Ted Hee. Well, anybody's got anything to say about Ted Hee, any complaint, please come forward and we will treat your complaint very seriously. Well, I know what that's an invitation for. Don't you? I mean, isn't it, isn't it absolutely obvious? Yeah. Matthew Paris, what's your reaction to the way an awful lot of newspapers, including our own newspaper, The Times, have given this story enormous attention? Do you despair. Feel, do you feel uncomfortable? I, I, I despair. Uh, once a story has become a big national story, and it has, then a big national paper like The Times must, must follow it as a big national story. But I just don't see how it has become a big national story in the first place. What people if they gave it a moment, thought would realise is that um, investigations are not proceeded with in their thousands every day by the police. Mm. Every day the police receive allegations which are looked at and not proceeded with because there doesn't seem to be anything in them. I'm perfectly prepared to believe that perhaps someone did make an allegation against Ted Heath that was not proceeded against because I very much suppose Ted Heath was not a child molester. It's it's. it's just possible, perhaps, but, but really hard to believe. I, I know three of his former private secretaries, and we talk quite indiscreetly among ourselves. We have from time to time. I've never heard this suggestion ever made. There's no reason to believe it. Cliff Richard doesn't want to go back to... I think he's put his home up for sale now because of the, the way the police and, and the BBC handled that one. Harvey Proctor, an old friend of mine, a Tory MP, has now lost his home and his job and as far as I can see, it's not being proceeded against, the police are just out of control. Mm. And, do, and do you think there's a particular vulnerability for bachelors of that period that they are going to get more accusations of this kind? Than I think there's a particular vulnerability for gay men. Uh, there's always been this conflation of, of child abuse with homosexuality, for which there is no evidence at all, but mm. there always has been, yes. And, yeah. and, and Isabel, the allegations are thrown at an establishment that today is seen by many in the public as rotten. We don't trust the press, we don't trust politics, perhaps we don't trust the legal establishment. And after having seen the scale, the industrial scale of the abuse, for example, associated with Jimmy Savile, there's a public sympathy for stories like this. You, you could understand why people may feel that these allegations are credible given the scale of cover-up, particularly within the church, of child abuse, which has been proven to have taken place. But I think, as Matthew was saying, there's something quite uncomfortable about the in-depth examination of Heath's private life. Just because he was quite a mysterious figure, most people thought he was homosexual, that doesn't mean that he was a child abuser. There's a yeah. huge, huge leap there from, from that. And it's sort of presented as part of the kind of possible evidence that he might have abused children, which I think I'm quite uncomfortable there is, with. There is something we could do about it, and, and, and that is um, more vigorously use the law on perverting the course of justice where completely frivolous allegations are made. Uh, I, I think what one should proceed against the people who make the allegations. I, I know immediately the response would be, oh, no, but you, we, would, we would scare people out of reporting rape, abuse, all kinds of things. But where someone has plainly just either well, just made things up, I, I don't think that the worst thing that could happen to them 
is simply that the, that the thing is not proceeded with and they're not believed. The worst thing that could happen to them should be that they are prosecuted for perverting the course of justice. I think that there's also an interesting debate to be had about the word investigating. So when yeah. the police receive an allegation and they look into it, which is their job, that does not mean they have decided something definitely happened. And, I and, yet, it's, and yet it's reported as if yes, they Yes, in the same way that I suppose as, as journalists we can be quite naughty and say that ministers are considering something when it's just that some slightly weird person wrote a letter to them which they may have seen on their desk. The police aren't investigating something with a view to taking it to court. They're, they're literally just looking into it. And I had some experience of this this summer where after the election, I got caught up in a weird conspiracy theory about the rigging of Thanet South and Nigel Farage's loss there. I tweeted in the small hours of, of election night that I'd heard from a UKIP source they thought they'd lost. And this was taken as evidence of severe vote rigging. And for weeks afterwards, people were making allegations to Kent Police. And I had two calls from Kent Police Golly. just saying, just wanted to check with you that you <laughs> hadn't received any allegations of vote rigging. And I said, no, I, I really just had a source who had seen people walking past at polling stations saying we're not voting for you Nigel and that was basically it but Kent police were officially investigating that mm -hmm. but there wasn't any serious sort it of was not combing through with. ballot boxes <laughs> I mean they, they made a call to a journalist on a Wednesday afternoon and then that was it basically mm -hmm. that's not quite the same as combing through files F final word to you David what? on this topic as I said, I, I actually, I actually th think this has ended up in the right place. Part of the problem is the relationship between the press and the police um, and the fact the police are scared. They're scared not to be taking things uh, serious. And so they are doing the other thing. They are showing that they are ultra keen and so on. Oh, they love uh, it. And of course, they're just scared. They love it. <laughs> well, actually, there is that bit. There is that bit that you got from Wiltshire. The grandstanding um, outside uh, of uh, this week, in front of which the is which is which is that they're, they're kind of enjoying themselves. And I think it's outrageous. I really do. I think mm. it's outrageous. Mm. And sooner or later, some group of investigative journalists are going to get into this and they are going to show why all this is a load of bollocks. Mm. And to, I cannot wait to for use that the moment, technical expression. To use the technical expression. <laughs> Well, look, for those of you who are more interested in remembering Ted Heath in a different way, I really do recommend a BBC Parliament series of programmes that was published, uh, broadcast about a week or so ago. They're still on the BBC iPlayer. I enjoyed them immensely. Looking back at really what's an amazing period in British government, he, um, we, of course, associate him... Conservative Eurosceptics like myself now associating with taking us into the European Union. But actually there was the confrontations with uh, Enoch Powell on immigration. There was some very interesting uh, trade union reforms. There was, of course, the oil crisis. Fascinating period. And I will, on the times.co.uk slash comment central, provide a link to those programmes. Isabel, David, Matthew, thank you very much for joining me this morning. We will be back uh, next week. And also I should thank you for listening and Dave McGuire my producer. Goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.